Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Bible in front of you. You're also welcome to take it home and read it. We're going to start reading in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. I'll read aloud, you follow along with me. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid. And he thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, well, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Well, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. It is completely sufficient for everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Amen? My daughter Patience just turned 12 the other day, and man, it is weird watching your kids grow up, right? I mean, it's one minute they're babies. The next minute they're grown. If you blink, you'll miss it. It's kind of what it's like to read about the story of Moses here in Exodus chapter 2. In verses 1 through 10, Moses is a baby. He's just three months old. Then in the very next verse, in verse 11, Moses is an adult. And we know from Acts chapter 7 verse 23 that when we come back into Moses as an adult, he's 40 years old. That's what Stephen says. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. They grow up so fast. Now there's a lot that we don't know about Moses' early life because we're just not told. What, what were his first words? Gugu Gaga, Dada, Mama, we don't know. We know it was in Hebrew. What was Moses like as a teenager? Did he have acne or scoliosis? Did he go through a rebellious stage? 
Did he struggle to find himself in his early 20s? Did he wrestle with his identity? At precisely what age did he leave his parents' home and move into the palace with the princess? We don't know. We don't know a lot. But here's what we do know. Moses, at the age of 40, is a man who is deeply concerned with matters of justice. And that's going to be your first point this morning. Point number one, justice. Look at verse 12 with me again. It says, He, being Moses, looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Verse 12 tells us the story of Moses killing a man. And if you've ever heard this story preached before, I think the odds are pretty high that you've heard a sermon that goes something like this. Moses was a murderer in the emphasis, you know, murder. He was a murderer. But then God saved him and God used him. And God took this murderer and turned him into a deliverer. And so the application for you is that no matter what you've done or how bad you've been, God can use you in the same way that he used Moses, in the same way that he used Paul, who was also a murderer. Now listen, that's, that's not wrong. It is certainly true that God can and does use anyone in any way that he sees fit. But the main point of this story, the reason why this story is here in this book, is not to tell us that Moses is a murderer. The main point of this story is, in fact, that Moses is a sojourner. We're going to come back to that. Hold that thought in your head. We're going to build up to that in point three. But before we do, you have to understand that this morning's text, in fact, does not indict Moses as a murderer. Well, then what does it do? To the contrary, this morning's text commends Moses. It commends him for having a heart that is inclined towards justice. Now that may not be immediately obvious to you as we read the story together. But there are clues in the story. But rather than have to try to suss out all those clues and pull on all those threads, we can do what I told you about earlier in the service. We can just go to Acts chapter 7 and get some help from Stephen. Let scripture interpret scripture. So turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, we're going to be in verses 23 and 24. In Acts chapter 7, verse 23, Stephen says this, When he, being Moses, was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. So when we read Acts chapter 7, we see that Moses, in killing this Egyptian, was not motivated by rage or prejudice or malice, but rather by a godly desire to defend the oppressed and to avenge an injustice. Verse 11 says that when he went out, it's because he saw his people's burdens. He went out and he saw their burdens. And that word burden is a very important word in the story of Exodus. It's a word that communicates deep suffering 
and oppression. And I can show you that by just flip back with me to the book of Exodus. Go to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 6. Starting in verse 6, we read, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgments. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." So what we see in this story is that the word burden is used interchangeably for slavery and oppression. Now another important word in this morning's story is the word beat in verse 11. In verse 11, the Egyptian was beating the Hebrew. Now this is the same word that's used in chapter 5 verse 14 to speak of what the slave drivers were doing to the Israelites. The Israelites were not meeting their quota. And so the slave drivers were beating them. So what Moses is doing is he's showing us that what this Egyptian was doing to this Israelite was a severe act of oppression like a slave driver torturing his slave. It's harsh, it's cruel, it's unjust oppression. So in verse 11 when it says that he saw Uh, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, he's not just talking about like a schoolyard bully beating up on some young kid who's slightly weaker and defenseless. No, he's talking about severe oppression. And Moses is not the kind of man who is just going to stand idly by and allow this to happen. Now listen, this is not a distinction without a difference. This idea that what Moses was doing was actually stopping a significant act of oppression There is a massive difference between a man who breaks into a house and kills the homeowner and a man who sees another man breaking into a house to kill a homeowner and kills that man. There's a big difference. Or to set it in the the context of Exodus, in the context of slavery, there's a big difference between killing a worker in a field and killing a slave driver who is trying to beat a slave to death in the field. Moses is the latter not the former. There's a lot to unpack here, but one of the first things I want to show you is that this story is actually a foreshadow of the righteous events of Yahweh that are yet to come in the book of Exodus. Think about what's happening here. Moses is striking down an oppressive Egyptian authority figure who's trying to kill a child of God, an Israelite. What happens later in the book of Exodus? God, using Moses, will strike down Pharaoh, the ultimate oppressor, the ultimate slave driver, in order not just to save one Israelite, but in order to save all of the people of God. So this is a foreshadow. In Moses killing this man, there's a foreshadow of the deliverance that is yet to come. Another episode that we see in Moses' zeal, his passion for justice, is found in verse 13. Look there. Go back to chapter 2. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. That's a soft word for fighting. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you 
strike your companion. Now that word strike is yet another significant word in this story. The word strike here is the same word that was used for what the Egyptian was doing to the Israelite. So Moses comes out and and he sees these two Israelites fighting and he uses this word strike and telling their story to cue the reader into what's happening here. This Hebrew is oppressing his brother in the same way that the Egyptians were oppressing the Israelites. And he says, I'm not going to tolerate it. I'm not going to tolerate it from the Egyptians and I'm not going to tolerate it from the Israelites. Now, we'll look more at how this episode resolves in point two. But for now, I just want to show you one more instance of Moses not tolerating injustice. Look at verses 16 through 19. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. We'll just stop there at verse 17. What we find in the story is that Moses not only saves these women from what we can assume is a pretty nasty encounter with these shepherds, but he also cares for these would-be victims afterwards. He, he gives them water and he, he waters the flock. Now what's interesting about this whole story is that some commentators ascribe to Moses the worst of motives throughout the story, but particularly at the beginning. They say, well, Moses killing the Egyptian was an act of ethnic partiality. You know, of course, an Israelite would strike down an Egyptian. But what we find in the rest of the story is that that is not true. Moses not only stops an act of oppression between an Egyptian and an Israelite, but also between an Israelite and a fellow Israelite. And then we get here to the story of him defending these Midianite women, and we find him potentially defending his enemies. Now, you might be thinking, well, Sean, what do you mean, enemies? How are these Midianites his enemies? Well, think back to the story of Joseph. You remember Joseph had 11 brothers. They hated him. They sold him into slavery. And do you remember who the slave traders were that carried him down into Egypt, into the land of death? They were the Midianites. Genesis 37, 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Listen, if you think like the, the blood feuds of the Hatfields and the McCoys are like really intense and really crazy, you have no idea what it was like to be tribal in the ancient Near East, okay? Your great-great-great-great-grandfather tried to kill my great-great-great-great-grandfather, and now I found you out in the desert, and I have to kill you. My honor depends upon it. That's what we would expect from Moses if... He were like everyone else in the times, but he's not. He's different. He's distinct. He has a passion for justice. When he sees these women, even these Midianite women, the ones, these Midianites, these people who sold his great-grandfather into slavery, when he sees them in need, being oppressed, being attacked by shepherds, oh, you know what they say about shepherds, right? No, no, we don't. When he sees them being attacked, He sees a helpless victim, and so he moves to action. He doesn't say, well, you know, they're Midianites. They get what's coming to them. This is God just giving them what they deserve. No, he moves in, he saves them, and he provides for them. And I think it's in this account that we really begin to see a transition in the story. We we really begin to understand what's going to happen with Moses' ministry. 
Throughout the rest of the book of Exodus, we're going to see Moses do some really incredible things. Technically, yes, God is going to do them through Moses, but we're going to see some things that are mind-blowing. But, but I want you to remember this sermon, I want you to remember this point that we're making right now, as we see all these incredible signs and wonders and miracles that Moses is going to do. The, the heart of Moses' ministry, at the very core of who he is and what God sent him to do for his people, is the fact that he's a shepherd is the fact that he is, above all else, a shepherd. That's what we see in, this, in these three stories of him acting for the sake of justice. He loves the sheep. He has compassion on the sheep. He risks his life for the sheep. Just think about it. Why did he see the Egyptian beating his fellow Israelite? The text says because his heart was heavy. He was burdened. He wanted to go out and see his people like a shepherd without his sheep. He was like, I hope they're doing okay. And so he goes out and he sees the injustice and then he has compassion and then he takes risks and he risked it all on more than one occasion. And he lost it all. We'll come back to that in point three. But here's what you have to understand about Moses is that he didn't have to do any of that. He didn't have to risk anything. He was living a comfortable life in the palace. He was the prince's adopted son. That's a good place to be when you live in Egypt. His people were enslaved. Things were getting bad, dark, scary. It was getting worse and worse every day that passed. We're going to talk about that next week. Their cries and groans were going up to God. And Moses says, I'm not going to stay here in my comfort. I'm going to go to the sheep. They need help. That's what a shepherd does. And then once he even rescues these, these women out at the well, he cares for them. He doesn't just merely stop the bad thing from happening. It's not merely a preventative ministry. Then he goes into caring mode. He supplies their need. He gives them water. He serves them, which is what shepherds do. Brothers and sisters, I hope, uh, I hope you've taken some time, and I'm not asking for a text message or an email this week, but... I hope you've taken the time to thank your fellow church members who serve as shepherds. It's really hard. <laughs> they don't have to do it. As, as a matter of fact, some of them could be doing other things that are more comfortable, more lucrative, less stressful. But they're shepherds at heart. They love you, and they do it because they love you. So if you haven't thanked them lately, I pray that you, that you would. Now, some application here before moving on to point two. I want us to see that you got to step back a little bit in order to see this application point. I want us to see that in Moses, we find a man who has all the right instincts and all the right intuitions, but he's lacking in refinement and wisdom. He's got all the right instincts. He's got all the right intuitions, but he's lacking in refinement and wisdom. He's clunky. At this point in the story, we know because... Well, we know the Moses story. We know that he's destined to be this great leader who does these amazing things for God. But as we read right here in Exodus 2, what we see is that he is just clearly not yet ready to be what God is calling him to be one day. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen tells us that after this event, before he gets called at the burning bush into his final public ministry, Moses spent 40 years... 40 years as a shepherd in the desert. 
That's a long time. That's a long time. But we, we see, don't we, in this story that Moses probably needed that, right? He, he's like a, a tough but flavorful piece of meat. Chefs love, they love cheap meats that are flavorful. They say, oh, nobody has the patience to cook them, but I have the patience to cook them, and, and I'm going to slow cook them, and I'm going to break down all that cartilage and all that material, and I'm going to pull all that flavor out, and I'm going to make them soft and tender. I'm going to make this meat delectable and enjoyable. That's what Moses is like. He is like a tough but flavorful piece of meat. You cannot microwave his ministry preparation. You have to slow cook him, and that's what God does. He, gets, he, he slow cooks Moses, so what happens? Moses goes out. He takes a wife. Now he's married. He's got to figure out how to be a husband. <laughs> You want to know if you're ready for ministry? Get married. You'll find out really soon. Now he has a child. Now he has to learn how to raise children. And he spends several decades working what we would call a blue-collar job as a shepherd. A lot of symbolism there. And he's in the obscure, quiet backwaters of of Egypt. He's in Midian. Nobody knows where he is, what what he's doing. All we know is that when he shows back up on the scene, he is prepared, as much as any human being can be prepared for what God was calling him to. So the application here is twofold. First, for the younger, hungry saints among us, if you are young and hungry to lead God's people, I praise God for you. I thank God. He who has a desire to be an elder desires a good thing. He who desires to be a missionary or to be a deacon or to be a professor or to be a biblical counselor, whatever you may feel led to do to serve God's people, that's a good thing. But you have to know that God's timing may not be your timing. Let no one despise you for your youth. Yes, that is true. And you may be a Timothy. You may be a Timothy. Maybe people are wrongly despising you. We think he's ready. Why are you making him wait? You may be a Timothy. But you also may be a Moses. Maybe God has big plans for your life from the perspective of heaven. And maybe you are just not even close to ready. This is why it's so important to be a member of a healthy local church. So many churches will be saved so much heartache. So many families will be saved so much heartache. So many Christians will be saved so much heartache if those who feel like they are called to the ministry will be a part of a church where they can be confirmed, where they can be discipled, where someone can walk with them through the process. You know, it's weird. When you're young, you want everything to happen now, right? It has to be fast. If I don't do it now, it's probably never going to happen. If it doesn't happen, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go crazy. Man, it's so helpful to have older saints just to sit there with you and say, hey, I believe you, I love you, I think God's going to use you, the day is coming, I hope, I think, I pray, but that day is not today, but I'm going to walk with you, and we're going to work towards that day together. So if that's you, if you are young and hungry, but you feel like God is telling you to wait, be encouraged, stay faithful, I will see you when you're 80. The second point of application here is for the more seasoned saints among us. You know, it's a weird thing that happens when you get older. You just start hating young people, you know? Like, I know that I'm getting old because I just see teenagers out, and I'm like, oh, I can't, ugh. Why are you talking like that? Why are you dressing like that? Somebody will play a new rap song, and I'm like, oh, this isn't music, right? I just, when you see youth, you just begin to despise it. Rightly so. <laughs> but, 
But you have to be there to encourage the young Moseses in your midst. The people who have all the right instincts, who have all the right intuitions, who have all the right desires. They want to serve the Lord. They want to protect the defenseless. They want to, they want to you know, defend the oppressed. They want to, want to take the gospel to the nations, whatever it may be. And you see them and you go, uh, you just need to sit down somewhere. You need to calm down. Brothers and sisters, that's not the right reaction. Even if you feel it in your heart, you've got to hide it a little, okay? First of all, you have to remember that you at one point in time were young and dumb and unrefined and totally lacking in wisdom, and you probably have forgotten that about yourself. The second thing that you have to remember is that God loves to use people like this. And God sees what you don't see, not only in their inner character and formation, but he also sees what you don't see about their future. He knows his plans for them. Guys, I don't want to make this a sermon about, about myself, but I have to tell you, as soon, I was a drug dealer, okay? I was walking around with gold teeth with vampire fangs and a gun in my pants selling crystal meth. And the next day, I'm out preaching the gospel in the projects. I was a mess for a long time. Some of you are like, Sean, you're still a mess. Thank you for bearing with me and being patient with me. But if you would have met me in the first five years of my walk with the Lord as I was trying to follow Jesus and do really good things for the glory of his name and the building up of the church and the sake of the Great Commission, you would have said, this guy's never going to amount to anything in ministry. He just needs to sit down and shut up. This is not his job. Spencer was there. Ask him. I remember young Will, crazy hair. I guess much that hasn't changed. But like he would be in church on Sunday morning without shoes on. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, Blaine too. Yeah. And, you know, when he, he was a young preacher. He got invited to go to these churches and, and, and preach, and he had no business being up there preaching. He, but he was excited, and he wanted to serve the Lord. He would go up there and do his best John Piper impersonation. And it was like the kid preacher on TV, and it was really bad. And a lot of people would have looked at that and said, this guy... Sit down. You're not the guy. You're not polished enough. You're not whatever. We could just go example after example after example. Instead of looking down your nose at some of these young saints who want to, who want to serve the Lord, why not come alongside them? Why not bear with them? Why not pray for them? Why not just as often as you can encourage them? When you see evidence of grace pointed out in their life, praise God for what I see in you. And when they act stupid and when they say something dumb or when they do something unwise, why not come along and just gently, patiently, consistently point that out? Because you know what? God will use that ministry to turn them into the kind of people who will do really good, important, helpful things for the sake of the gospel. This sounds really corny, but I'm just going to say it. There are some young Moseses in our midst. And so you, as an older saint, should be encouraging them, supporting them, and praying for them in any way that you possibly can. Maybe you don't see it in them now, but maybe God does. Point number two, grace. The day after Moses killed the Egyptian, he ended up breaking up a fight between to Israelites, and then he rebuked the guilty party. Look at verses 13 and 14. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And then we know how 
the Israelite responds, right? He basically says, who made you the boss? <laughs> he says, who made you the judge over me? Now, the irony here is very thick because we know that 40 years after this event, Moses will come back to Egypt as the divinely appointed judge. And so this man and his rebuttal speaks more than he understands. But here's the thing. Whether or not Moses at this point in his ministry has been formally made a judge over Israel is entirely beside the point. What this Israelite was doing to his brother was wrong. It was a sin. And you do not need a formal office or title or badge in order to point out sin. Okay? You don't have to be a pastor or a judge or a police officer or a missionary to point out and try to stop it when your neighbor is oppressing your other neighbor. Last year, uh, I had a situation where I lost a longtime friend of mine. And uh, I just couldn't help but thinking about the story as I was reading this story because what happened was this friend... I saw a sin pattern in his life, and I went to go confront him about the sin pattern that I saw in his life. I tried to do it gently, patiently, lovingly. I'm sure I didn't do it perfectly. And he responded to me in much the same way that this Israelite responded to Moses. He said, you don't have the right to correct me. You're not my pastor. Which was true. It was true. But it was also entirely beside the point. I was not trying to reason with him from, from a position of authority as a pastor, I was trying to reason with him as a brother, as a friend. And my formal authority or my lack thereof should have had really no bearing on that conversation. If what I was saying was true, he should have considered it and repented. If he believed what I was saying wasn't true, he should have weighed it and thanked me for bringing a correction his way and prayed for the Lord to give him clarity. And then we could have both moved on. But he didn't do that. Instead, what he did was he deflected. And that's what we find in this story. That's what we find. Who made you judge over me? That's a classic case of deflection. The guilty man simply doesn't want to accept responsibility for his actions. So what does he do? He tries to find fault in the one bringing the correction. And he actually does it twice. Not only does he say, well, you don't have any authority over me. Then he says, and by the way, didn't you kill an Egyptian yesterday? You killed somebody yesterday and now you're going to talk to me about hitting somebody today? Man, you're a hypocrite. Now, there are two problems with that second line of reasoning. Let's look at them both. For starters, the man who says this was not there the day before at the killing of the Egyptian. The text tells us that when Moses killed the Egyptian, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one around, he struck the Egyptian. So what this means is that Moses killed the Egyptian, and the Israelite who was rescued in that moment went and spread the word. We don't know how he spread the word. Did he say it positively? Guys, you won't believe it. Moses, one of us who's in the palace, the princess's adopted son, he came and he saved me and he killed this Egyptian who was trying to kill me. Or was he more gossipy and sinister about it? We don't know, but you know how the telephone game goes. Either way, by the time this man hears about it, what he's heard is either secondhand or thirdhand or fourthhand information. He's only, he only knows what he's heard through the grapevine. So he's really in no position to try to use this information against Moses as Moses brings a correction. 
Now, the second problem with his reasoning is this. Even if Moses was being a hypocrite, even if what Moses did was totally unjust, it would not change the facts of the situation. The fact of the situation is an Israelite, a Hebrew, was oppressing his own brother. A Hebrew was oppressing his own brother. And Moses was right. Guys, if you don't think God can use hypocrites to point out sin in your life and sanctify you, you don't understand how the church works. Every person in this room is a hypocrite. Hopefully we're repenting hypocrites, right? But we're hypocrites nonetheless. If anyone ever corrects you in the life of the body, they're probably in some way, some fashion, going to be a hypocrite. But God uses that. And God could have used Moses in his hypocrisy, if he was being hypocritical, to point out this man's sin. All of this leads me to ask us a very practical question about ourselves. Have we ever responded to correction in this way? I know I have. I could tell you story after story. It's embarrassing. I wish it wasn't true. But I can tell you story after story of, of people confronting me lovingly, trying to correct me, pointing out sin in my life. And rather than admitting my sin and owning my sin and repenting of my sin, I have tried to deflect. I want to be really honest with you about this. I have not just done this sometimes. There is a pattern of this For as long as I've been walking with the Lord, there is a pattern of this. Not like a disqualifying pattern, but a human pattern. A pattern that I'm going to have to fight for the rest of my life. And nobody is exempt. I have done this to my fellow church members. I have done this to my wife. I have done this to my children. I have done this to my friends. Deflect, deflect, deflect. By God's grace, I often realize it after the fact, repent and go back and ask for forgiveness and ask for the grace to do better. But this is still part of my sin pattern. And I hope you're honest enough to admit that it's part of your sin issues too. It's part of your sin pattern too. Everyone does this because we are all descendants of Adam. The very first sin that was committed when it was pointed out by a loving, holy, and righteous God, the first thing that Adam did was deflect I wouldn't have done this if it wasn't for this woman who, by the way, you gave me. It's not my fault. And so we always deflect. We can, we can find ways, we can find a million ways to not take responsibility for our own actions. We can point out the problems with the system in which we live. We can point out the hypocrisy in the person who's bringing the correction. Oh, you think I'm spending too much time on my phone? Well, I saw you watching football for four hours last week during the whatever playoffs. Who are you to bring this correction to me? Well, is it true? That's what you need to be asking yourself. Not is this person hypocritical. Is what they're saying true? Well, you know, they did bring it to me, but I didn't really like their tone. They just sounded a little too self-righteous when they said it. Okay, maybe, but is it true? Is it true? Or you can try to play the victim, or you can question someone's motives. That's one of the best ones. That's one of the easiest ones. I people, it's so easy to ascri- ascribe false motives to people, negative mo- uh, uh, motives, bad motives. You know, I, you know, I can take a good faith criticism from a good faith actor, but I just don't trust their motives, and so I'm not going to listen to them. 
we will do whatever it takes to avoid accepting responsibility for our actions. And here's the real tragedy of it all. When we do this, we shut down the means by which God is trying to save us from the consequences of our own sins. If you're a Christian and someone brings a correction to you, even if it's only like 20% right, God is trying to show you something. Do, we, do you believe that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord? That means that even when people correct you and it's not 100% accurate or their motives are wrong or they're hypocritical or whatever, if they're bringing you something that even has a seed or a germ of truth in it that you need to see about yourself to become more like Jesus, God is doing something good for you. We recently in the life of our church had a situation where, where two sisters in the church became very upset with me in my public ministry. And they, wanted, they didn't want me to be the pastor anymore. And they left the church. I think most of what they said was not true. I think it was unfounded. But instead of going, you know, X, Y, and Z and trying to deflect, I handed it over to the elders and then I prayed. And it was not an easy prayer to pray. And I prayed it a bunch of times with God's help. I said, God, help me to see the kernel of truth in what I think is an incorrect assessment of my ministry. And you know what happened? I found something. There was a kernel of truth. There was maybe even a little bit more of a kernel, more than a kernel. And I said, thank you, Lord. And it wasn't easy to say it. Thank you, Lord, for bringing this to my attention so that I can grow and become more like your son, Jesus. Listen to what Stephen says about this incident in Acts chapter 7. Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. Moses goes, I, I, I love you guys. I, I, I want to protect you guys. I, 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 you're, you're being poorly treated. I want to be your defender, your redeemer. He, he couldn't make sense of the fact that they thought that he was trying to hurt them when all he was trying to do was try to help them. They didn't understand. And that's exactly what sin does to us, friends. It blinds us. It causes us to not see things clearly. When someone comes and brings a correction to us, we will do anything to avoid seeing what they're saying and accepting guilt and responsibility. You've seen this in cases of church discipline in this church, have you not? There have been cases where we've brought somebody before the church and we have addressed what is clearly a sin issue in their life. And they just will not, except for, they will just point 10,000 fingers back at us. And the church members are like this, and the elders are like this, and the doctrine is like this. And they will say whatever they can so that they just won't have to admit that they're wrong. And I don't understand it, friends, because the gospel is so freeing. The gospel says you don't have to pretend like you have it all together, like you're always right. The gospel says you're often wrong and there's great freedom in accepting your guilt and responsibility as a matter of fact only when you do that can you really know the grace of God so brothers and sisters my exhortation to you this morning is to believe that gospel do not be like the man in this story who deflects do not be like the Pharisees in the gospels do not be like Adam in the garden Instead of deflecting and denying loving correction, receive it as the means by which God is saving you from the consequences of your sin. Now, there are two more things I need to show you in this story before we move on to point three. The first thing is another foreshadow. Uh, this is the first encounter between Moses and Israel in the book of Exodus, wherein 
the Israelites, the people of God, will not listen to Moses' voice. As we move through the story of salvation, this Exodus story, all the way to the promised land, you're going to see that Moses consistently and constantly tries to rebuke, exhort, correct, challenge the Israelites in love according to God's word, and they will over and over again deflect, deny, reject. This is why the Bible says that they are a stiff-necked and a hard-hearted people. Which leads me to the second thing I want you to to understand about this. And if if you have in any way been distracted or if you have checked out, I just come back to me because if you miss this, if you miss this, you miss the gospel. The only difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites in this story is the grace of God. In verse 1, the Egyptian is striking the Israelite and oppressing him. In the very next verse, it is the Israelite who is striking the Israelite and oppressing him. The Egyptians, later in the story, will refuse to heed the voice of God through Moses. But right at the beginning of the story, we see that it's the Israelite who is refusing to heed the voice of God through Moses. Later in the story, Pharaoh is going to harden his heart to the truth of God's word. But here we see that having a hard heart is not a uniquely Egyptian phenomenon. Friends, you've got to see yourself in this story. You've got to see yourself in the story. If you think that you are better than your neighbor, that there's something in your nature that makes you better than your neighbor, you are misunderstanding the gospel. The only reason you are here today and saved and they are out there and lost is because of the grace of God. There's nothing you can say or do to take credit for that. You, if you think that there's something in you that caused you to believe that doesn't exist in your neighbor and that's why they don't believe there's something better about you, you need to repent. You have to go to the cross. You have to humble yourself. You're proud. You're arrogant. You still think that there's something good in you that God is, like he's just really thankful that like you have something good that caused you to latch on to his gospel message. No. No one is righteous. No, not one. All have gone astray. Every single one of us before a holy and righteous God is completely lost, completely sinful. And if you say, well, Sean, the difference is that I chose grace when it was presented to me and they didn't choose the grace. If you think that choosing grace is grace, then you don't understand what grace is. Think about the whole story of salvation. Why Abraham and not Lot? Why Jacob and not Esau? Why Moses and not Pharaoh? Why Israel and not the Egyptians? Why Peter and not Judas? Why you and not your neighbor? Or why you and not your parents? Or why you and not your sibling? Or why you and not your spouse? What are some answers that you could give that would not be the grace of God? What answer could you give? Well, you know, I was, I was raised in a Christian household. Therefore, I think I was more inclined to receive the gospel. Jacob and Esau, same household, same womb, same DNA. Well, you know, I think it's just because I care more about the things of God. I've always been interested in religious and spiritual things. Why do you think that is? Why do you think, if you think that's true, you came out of the womb sort of interested in the things of God? Do you think that, you think you can take credit for that? 
Why is your nature so inclined to take the theological things of this life more seriously? Can you say, well, it's because I'm more intelligent or I'm more disciplined or whatever. Whatever answer you have is not a sufficient answer, and it's an answer that takes credit away from God, takes glory away from God. You're saying there's something in me that makes me better than my neighbor, and that's why I'm saved. And if you say that, you need to repent because you do not understand the gospel. And I pray that you will repent today and that you will understand that the only reason you are here and they are not is because of grace. On the last day, we are all going to close our eyes and we are going to stand before the judge of the universe and we are going to see very clearly the reality of hell and the promise of salvation. The sheep and the goats are going to be separated. The wheat and the chaff are going to be finally dispersed, each to its proper place. If you belong to Christ, you on that day are going to enter into heaven. You're going to be in the presence of God. You're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And then you're going to see an untold number of souls go into the eternal abyss of God's wrath forever. Where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where there is darkness. Where they're going to be shut out from the glory of God forever. And on that day as you stand there beholding the eternal reality of salvation and damnation, you will not be able to say, it was something in me that made me get here. I'm here because of something in me. You're just going to fall down on your face before the King of Kings. You're going to cast out whatever crown you thought you had, and you're going to say, it's all of grace. It's all of grace. So why not start saying that now? Point number three. Identity. Look at verses 21 and 22. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Man, this is such a weird way. This is such a weird way for this story to end. So Moses flees the palace, he gets into a fight with some shepherds, he gets married, he has a baby, and almost like while he's holding the baby and thinking of a baby name, he kind of has this midlife crisis. So here's what you need to understand, why, why this is the way that this story ends. You have to understand that everything that has happened in this story has been leading the narrative in this direction. It's, it's all been leading Moses to this one ultimate, profound, life-changing realization. The realization is, I am a sojourner. Think about what we've seen so far in the story, right? The Hebrews did not consider Moses to be one of their own. They said, you're not one of us. Who made you a judge over one of us? You can't tell us what to do. You're not a Hebrew. The Egyptians did not consider Moses to be one of their own. The Pharaoh did not consider Moses to be one of his own. Oh, sure, he may have been adopted into Pharaoh's house, but when he killed an Egyptian, Pharaoh, for the second time, tried to kill him. And that lets you know that Pharaoh sort of viewed him as an illegitimate son because you don't murder a prince for killing a peasant. But that's exactly what Pharaoh tried to do. Then in verse 19, we also see the Midianites do not view Moses as a Hebrew when the, when, the, when the Midianite women go back to their dad, what do they say? They say, an Egyptian rescued us. So Moses is like, what am I? Who am I? Who is my family? Who are my, 
people? What is my lineage? Where do I belong? As I'm working on this sermon this week, uh, I'm 37 years old, which means I just cannot help but process this story through the lens of my own experience, right? Moses is 40 when he has this realization, so I'm trying to imagine what, I mean, just three more years, what it must have been like for Moses at the age of 40 to finally come to understand himself, to finally come to grasp his identity that he, like Abraham and like Isaac and like Jacob, is a sojourner in the land. If you want to do a little uh, extra credit bonus reading this afternoon, just go to like Bible Gateway or whatever Bible app you have and just type the word sojourner in and then just go read in the book of Genesis all the times that sojourner comes up. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Their identity is tethered to the fact that they are not the city builders like Cain, like Babel. They are the sojourners, the ones who trust the Lord as they wander in the land. And so my prayer for you today, brothers and sisters, is that you will have the same realization or a deepening of the realization that Moses had, that you are a sojourner. Like Moses in Egypt, like Israel in the wilderness, like Jesus during his earthly ministry, and like every Christian everywhere at all times, you are a sojourner. You know, it took, it took Moses 40 years and a lot of suffering to come to this realization. And I wonder what it'll take for us to come to that realization. When Amber and I were in the military, we lived in six different places in five years. Six different places in five years. And we never put down roots anywhere that we went because we knew that wherever we would go, we would never have our forever home as long as we were in the army. And that doesn't mean that we didn't live. We found churches. We rented apartments or houses. We, we tried to make friends. We enjoyed the local entertainment, the culture. But we never felt at home, and so we never settled down. And that's the essence of what a sojourner is. A sojourner is not only someone who doesn't settle down, it's also someone who is longing, longing for their forever home. We're waiting. I have what I thought here was a really good illustration, but I'm just going to scrap it and just... I just want to speak plainly with you. You don't belong here. Do you get that? You don't belong here. I mean, in this building, in this, with this church gathering, I hope you feel like you belong, like I said at the beginning of the service, because it's a little foretaste of heaven. I mean, in this world, you don't belong here. And I fear, as your pastor, that we are forgetting that. I fear that we are growing comfortable in this place because that's what happens in a life of comfort and affluence. We start to feel and think like this world is our home. We begin to conform to the patterns of this world. And it's not like one minute you're like, you know, I don't belong here. I'm following Jesus. I'm just a stranger. And then the next minute you're like, America. The change is slow. It's imperceptible. And, it, and the attack, the assault on your status as a sojourner, it usually comes from good things, right? Things like family. Oh, if you have a good family, praise the Lord that he's given you that blessing. But it also might make you feel like, ooh, I belong here. I'm comfortable here. 
It could be your career. Maybe the Lord's giving you a job that you love, that you're succeeding in. You make a lot of money. And heck, you not only have a lot of money for retirement, but you're also able to give for missions and church planning and all that stuff. And you, you may be feeling like, ooh, I, I, I like this. I don't want to leave this. I don't want to give this up. Or it could be your hobbies. It could be your, your, your politics. Whatever it is, it can all just feel so comfortable. And slowly, 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 we begin to forget that this is not our forever home. And so we put down roots and they go deeper and deeper and deeper. And when we do that, when the roots go deep, we don't want to uproot them. We don't want to die. I don't want to go to heaven to be with Jesus. Things are really good here. And listen, here's what you have to know. And this is a promise from God that is absolutely 100% unbreakable. It's a guarantee. God, if you belong to him, will never let you stay comfortable like that. He will not let you stay comfortable like that. He will shake you out of your delusion. He'll do whatever it takes to remind you that this is not your true home. And I mean whatever it takes. That's what he did for Moses. Moses lost everything. Do you understand that? He lost everything. He went from a prince to a pauper, overnight, friends, gone, family, gone, comfort, gone, status, gone, wealth, gone. One night he was in a palace, the next night he was alone in a desert. And it was only after God had made him go through that gauntlet of suffering that he was able to have the wherewithal. He, he woke up, it was like God threw a, a bucket of ice water on his spiritual delusion, it woke him up and he says... I'm a sojourner. He had to be woken up. He had to be reminded. He had gotten too comfortable. Think about what it must have been like for him to be a prince in the palace of Egypt. You belong to Pharaoh's daughter. Everything was always good all the time. And the Lord took it all away from him. As we close... I want to remind you of one more aspect of this story. You probably noticed by now that the book of Exodus is full of foreshadows, right? These hints of things yet to come. There were two that we've already seen in this morning's text. And, and the foreshadows in Exodus, they very often only point into the very near future. Like, for example, Moses killing the oppressive Egyptian points forward to something that's in the near future when, when God is going to use Moses to tear down and kill the ultimate oppressor, Pharaoh. But what I want you to see is that really everything in this story is, is really pointing way far into the future. It's all pointing to Jesus. So just think about it. Moses killing an oppressive authority figure does not merely point forward to the downfall of Pharaoh. It points forward to the ultimate downfall of the ultimate oppressor and worker of iniquity and injustice, Satan and death and sin. When you see this Egyptian struck down by Moses, you should be thinking of death being struck down by Jesus on the cross. Or think about the broader context of this story. You remember in last week's text, Moses passed through the waters of death. You remember that in the basket? And in this week's text, we see him being led out into the wilderness in preparation for his ministry. Does that remind you of anyone? In Matthew chapter 3 and 4, Jesus passes through the waters of death at his baptism. 
And then he's led into the wilderness as the final preparation for his ministry of salvation. Think about Moses the shepherd. Moses is a good shepherd, yes, but he is not the good shepherd. Moses, you're going to see this as we walk through the story. He's going to fail over and over and over again in his ministry, which is why he cannot be the ultimate shepherd that the sheep are waiting for. We need someone better than Moses, and that's Jesus. Think about Moses fleeing for his life. Moses flees Egypt when he finds out that Pharaoh, for the second time, is trying to kill him, and he escapes. Praise God, he escapes. But do you know who didn't escape? Jesus. Jesus saw his impending death coming for the sake of his people and he walked right into it. Jesus stayed in the city. He submitted himself to the oppressive rulers and he died for his people and that's why he's the good shepherd. John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd for the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Or think about this theme of justice. The Israelite asked Moses, who made you judge? Well, God did. But Moses is not the final judge. On the last day when the judgment is carried out, the one who has been appointed to judge all men is not Moses. It's none of the judges from the book of Judges. It's not David. Who is it? John 5, the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son. Acts 17, a day has been appointed on which the Father will judge the world in righteousness through a man he has appointed, Jesus. This isn't even all the examples. I could keep going. I just want you to see that every detail in this story (coughs) points us forward to our need for Jesus. And the same thing is true of your story. Every detail in your story is pointing out to you how much you need Jesus. Every longing for justice, every hunger for grace, every desire for heaven, it's all pointing forward to Jesus. Nothing in your story makes sense without Jesus. So I pray that you will receive his offer of grace and mercy today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being with us in your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. Thank you for helping us by your Holy Spirit to commune, to to fellowship with you in your word. Lord, if you have wrought conviction in our hearts, we pray that you will lead us to repent. And to not repent the way that the world views repentance, but to repent the way that you call us to repent. If you have encouraged us in your word today, we, we pray, God, that as we go back out into this world that is not our home, we will be ready and willing to serve you with a happy heart, that we will bear witness to you with hearts full of joy and great thanksgiving. And we pray all of this in our only hope in the name of Jesus. Amen.